Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's a Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. In the face of battlefield setbacks in Ukraine, the Russian leader doubled down this week. President Putin announced the mobilization of 300,000 additional troops. It's a number larger than the original invasion force, and it's Russia's first mobilization since World War II. And Moscow appears poised to annex Ukrainian territory under its control through staged sham referendums in four Ukrainian provinces today. Joining me now with her analysis, Marina Zalosnaya. She's on the faculty at the University of Iowa in the Departments of Political Science and Sociology. She's an ethnic Russian who grew up in Ukraine, in Crimea specifically. Professor Zalosnaya, welcome back to our program. Thank you very much for having me. So many rapid recent developments in this seven-month-long war since Russia invaded Ukraine back in February. Uh, The Ukrainians making dramatic battlefield uh, advances, retaking much of their territory previously occupied by Russian forces. In response to the announcement of the mobilization, we have reports of Russian men fleeing their country, fearing they will be called up. And then we had the uh, U.N. meeting this week, uh, insults, accusations, talk of war crimes, even nuclear holocaust, as the U.N. Council met to debate. What do you see in these latest developments? Right. Um, it seems like within the last month and a half, um, the war has reached an inflection point where the success by Ukrainian troops and Uh, regaining some of the territory in the eastern parts of the country, taking it back from Russia. Um, It really puts Russia in a position where uh, some of us, some analysts were hoping that perhaps it would be pushed to the negotiating table. However, the uh, choices that uh, Putin seems to have made are the opposite. Um, At this point, it looks like we are on the way to escalation of the military activity. Um, On the one hand, um, as you mentioned, there is a, you know, it's called partial mobilization. However, it's unclear exactly what this means. Um, So there is a a very vigorous effort to mobilize, according to the president, 300,000 troops. However, um, reports from the ground saying that um, the number is very tentative and is likely to grow uh, and is not likely to be checked or, you know, the mobilization is not going to be limited to it. Um, some analysts predict up to a million uh, people uh, to be mobilized. And on the other hand, you know, today is the first day of the uh, referenda in um, Donetsk, Lugansk, Kherson, and uh, the Expectation is that this is the same playbook that Putin has followed in Crimea and that these territories are going to be annexed. So we are, um, in terms of where the war is going, it looks like it's not headed towards the end. Quite the opposite. Yeah. How do you interpret the reaction within the last couple of days to Putin's announcement on Wednesday to mobilize those additional troops? We have masses of um, Russian men fleeing the country, apparently, and uh, Putin made it clear that uh, if you do not show up for service, you can face prison time, right? Right. Uh, absolutely. There is a criminal responsibility for those who um, who avoid uh, conscription. 
this is the first time that the war is really hitting home to many Russians, right? Um, up till now, it was possible for them to sort of continue with their everyday lives outside of, you know, the general economic deterioration. The consequences were not felt personally. This has changed, right? So uh, in the next couple days, the situation will develop further and perhaps we'll get some clarity, but my conducts on the ground are reporting mass confusion. Uh, it is unclear who is, get, is going to get mobilized, right? So even as much as the maximum age of potential conscripts differs across territories uh, and also differs on paper and in reality, uh, we have mass reports of people being mobilized from the provinces, people who do not have access to perhaps legal help, uh, people who are more confused, so people who do not speak fluent Russian, or people who are socioeconomically marginalized, are especially vulnerable to conscription. So it, right now, the mood is of absolute confusion, chaos, and, you know, uh, frankly, panic among many Russians. So things like mass exodus from the Russian cities from the airports is reported, you know, uh, again, panic is, uh, characterizes the situation on the border. So it, sometimes people are able to get out of the country, other times they're not. And it is an unheard of and um, absolutely unprecedented situation for Russians who did not anticipate this right. uh, in a lot of ways. Right. And, and just to be clear, you're not only drawing your information from reports you're reading here like the rest of us are, but you have a lot of contacts, family, friends in Russia, in Ukraine. Uh, I sure hope your your family is okay, is doing well. Tell us a little bit more uh, about your contacts over the last few days as we experience this inflection point. Thank you for asking, Ben. Um, as you mentioned, I grew up in Crimea, which has been a sort of contested territory for the last 30 years, uh, if not longer. So um, I have loved ones and family members and friends on um, sort of both sides of this conflict. Uh, as I mentioned, the Russian, the Russian side um, is really panicking, for the lack of better terms, and, um, you know, uh, actively seeking for solutions. The Internet, is, the, the Russian, Russian uh, sort of online uh, sphere is flooded with uh, legal advice on how to avoid conscriptions, on ways to get out of the country, on places where you can still buy tickets. Uh, so my... A lot of my um, relatives and friends on the Russian side have, you know, have not been sleeping for the last couple of days trying to figure out their next steps. On the Ukrainian side, there's also mixed feelings. Um, on the one hand, Putin's decision to increase mobilization was predictably unpopular. Therefore, it is clear that it was something that he did not want to do, uh, uh, which means that he finds himself in a situation where he has to do things he doesn't want to do. And a lot of people on the Ukrainian side are taking it as a sign of their success, right? As a sign of the war effort, uh, bringing the results uh, th that they desire, putting, putting Putin into a situation where he is likely to face domestic backlash. At the same time, now that the, you know, the referenda 
and the four provinces are you know, pretty much guaranteed to be followed by an annexation. Uh, this provides a pretense for the Russian government to uh, defend any intervention onto these territories as if it's a Russian territory, right? So this basically precludes Ukrainian forces from retaking these territories without fearing really serious consequences, right? You know, we hear the talk about the use of nuclear weapons and whatnot, Putin put it on the table that options will not be limited when it comes to the protection of the Russian territory. So there is this, you know, a mixture of feelings of, on the one hand, this is a reaction to clear success. On the other hand, this move potentially brings Ukraine's ability to regain this territory even further out of their sight, out of their reach. Professor Zalesnaya, Marina, I'm sure we'll be checking back. Thank you for the view, your insights, your unique insights, the views, the perspectives from both sides of this conflict. Marina Zalesnaya on the faculty of the University of Iowa, a political scientist and sociologist. Thank you so much, Marina, for talking with us during these difficult times. Thank you very much, Ben. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, remember that possible nationwide rail strike in the news last week? The Biden administration helped broker a tentative deal that will affect about 120,000 rail workers across the country. Let's find out where things stand this week as voting by rail workers on that tentative deal is beginning. Paul Iverson is with me, labor educator with the University of Iowa Labor Center. Hello again, Paul. Hi, Ben. Good to be here. Good to have you with us. Explain a little bit of this. Uh, While many are celebrating, I understand, the aversion of this potentially disastrous shutdown, some workers have reservations about the New Deal. Give us some context as the voting starts uh, by workers. This is not like the John Deere or ingredient strikes that we're familiar with in this area, which took place under the National Labor Relations Act. Under that act, contracts expire at a certain time, and when the contract expires, then if negotiations falter, the union can strike. Uh, The Railway Labor Act is a completely different statute and was designed to keep the rails moving. So it sets up a long and cumbersome process. at which you have to jump through a whole lot of different hoops before you're ever able to do what is called self-help, which in the union's case would be a strike. So uh, the contract never expires, and you have to have permission to strike. So these negotiations have been going on for three years. And mm-hmm. the when when they couldn't reach agreement, the National Mediation Board tried to mediate. That didn't work. They offered arbitration. The parties rejected it. Um, and so they were going through a cooling off period in which uh, after 30 days, the union could strike. But the statute allows the president to appoint an emergency board to try to resolve the dispute, which President Biden did. But the parties did not accept the presidential emergency board recommendations either. Um, And so uh, President Biden got involved directly and brokered a deal. Um, And so now we have a tentative agreement. So the union can't strike until the tentative agreement is resolved. 
If mm-hmm. the tentative agreement is accepted, then there'll be a new contract um, that will uh, make up for the three years that they haven't gotten a pay raise and then go five years into the future. Um, and there will be no strike. Um, but if the if the um, contract is rejected, then we go through another cooling off period after which uh, the union can strike. And so that's the context we're in right now is – Voting has begun, but as you said, it's 120,000 workers in 12 different unions that work all across the country, and wow. uh, and 24 hours a day, seven days a week, somewhere there's a train running. So right. there is no time at which all of your members are someplace that you can communicate with them all at once. So this isn't like John Deere where you can bring everybody into the union hall. Yeah. They vote in one afternoon. So a lot of this is being done by mail. Um, and there's the challenge of getting good information to the members about what's in the tentative agreement, explaining what it is they're voting on before they vote. And so then just the communications issues of a nas- you know, national union um, with people that are working odd hours and lots of hours and trying to communicate the proposal so that people can vote. So that's the the logistical issue that we're dealing with and why it's going to take so long to get the final vote. Paul, um, before our time runs out, tell us a little bit about the sources of frustration by workers. Um, I mentioned reservations about this deal. What What are the biggest issues for workers? Sure. The economics of this deal were worked out long ago. So this is not about pay and benefits. The big issue is uh, the health and safety of the employees because of the scheduling practices of the railroads. Um, Engineers and conductors do not have set schedules. They are on call. And if a train is ready to to go, they get called. They have two hours uh, to get to uh, the station to take that train out. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be called out every day, but they're on call every day. So there's never a day that they uh, aren't that they can say, "Well, I'm not going to have to work today." I'm sure of that. And and recently in June, uh, the Burlington Northern Santa Fe implemented a new attendance policy that is even worse. That penalizes people for taking themselves off the on call list at any time, even if it's for a doctor's appointment. To, uh, you know, when President Biden got involved, he finally leaned on the carriers and said, come on, you have to give people some time off. And so there is some time off in the tentative agreement. Um, The question is whether that's going to be enough. The chief issue here, a work-life balance issue here. Uh, Paul, before we do say goodbye, any any idea of how this vote will, will go from your perspective? I think the only thing I can say is that I don't think it is going to be a runaway on either side. I think it's going to be a very close vote. There's a lot of frustration out there. I wouldn't be surprised to come back in the middle of October and explain why they did vote for it or to come back in the middle of October and explain why they didn't. Okay, let's make that a date on the radio here on IPR if we can. Paul Iverson, labor educator with the University of Iowa Labor Center. Let's talk in October, see what happens with this uh, this vote um, by union members, 12 unions involved, uh, to see if that tentative deal will uh, be supported by enough of the rail workers in this country. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben.
Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This week, Taiwan agreed to buy nearly $3 billion of U.S. corn and soybeans. The announcement came at a ceremony at our state capitol with Taiwanese trade officials, also Governor Kim Reynolds, and Iowa farm leaders. Let's talk about it with ag economist Chad Hart of Iowa State University. Hello again, Chad. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm fine. Tell us more about this uh, deal. How much corn? How many beans? You're talking about uh, somewhere around 100 million bushels of soybeans, roughly 60 million bushels of corn. It's a sizable purchase. I mean, you're talking about Taiwan in a what's called a normal year, looking back to like 2021, purchased about almost $4 billion worth of agricultural products from the U.S. This deal is worth about $3 billion right now. Mm-hmm. So what does this mean for our state, uh, for the nation? Put it in those contexts, if you could. Is this, a, is this an uptick in the demand from Taiwan for our commodities? Uh, it's mixed. I would say for the corn, it's roughly staying where they've been over the last couple of years. For soybeans, it is nearly a doubling of purchases compared to recently. So it is an uptick overall, uh, but it leans more towards the soybean side of the marketplace. Help us understand a little bit, Chad, what goes into such a deal? I'm sure very complicated, nuanced in some cases. What are some factors that go into it and perhaps factors we may not even think of? Well, I think in this case, you know, the the big nuance here would probably be the geopolitical side of it. The idea is that typically as we've dealt with Taiwan, we have always uh, sort of framed it up to make sure that we were abiding by the one China policy and working with, we would call them Chinese Taipei. This is stating, you know, directly Taiwan, the country, and, you know, it's firming up what I would call, let's call it preparation for a possible full trade deal with Taiwan in the future. China is the largest buyer in Beijing. We could say China, Beijing is the largest buyer of U.S. corn and soybeans. How do they view such a deal, such an announcement? Uh, That's the deal. I, I think it will be troublesome politically, but they haven't made any formal announcements as a sort of response to these letters of intent. And I think that's mainly because these letters of intent are items that we've seen signed before between the U.S. and Taiwan, and especially at the levels we're seeing here, you know, it's like I say, for corn, it's basically what they have purchased in the past. Soybeans, we are seeing more there. So it's not that far out of line from previous uh, engagements between the two countries. I understand Taiwanese ag officials have been in the state touring in some cases. I wonder if that's just for sort of optics or if they're really checking out in some way the ag facilities, the farmland, uh, which are uh, yielding the soybeans bound for their country. Uh, I would argue it is a little bit of both. Typically, when we see uh, letters of intent, especially of this size, we do see this type of tour where they are sort of saying, you know, we want to go out and see where these products are grown, how they're grown, 
and also, you know, recognize the states that they come from. And what are the differences in in terms of quality in corn you can buy on the world market, corn and beans? What criteria are they using, for instance? Well, typically what they would be looking for would be, let's call it the consistency of the crop that they're getting here. So looking at the moisture content within each of the crops and how consistent that is, looking at what we call the, you know, the percentages of damaged kernels or damaged beans when you're looking at the soybean crop and, you know, how do we control for that and limit that damage as we ship crops to overseas markets. Yeah. How do um, Iowa beans and corn measure up on the world market? Are they considered highly rated uh, commodities? They are highly rated commodities. I mean, there's a reason why when you think about, you know, the corn belt here in the U.S., it is we represent a global, you know, basically the top market when it comes to both corn and soybeans. Okay. Chad Hart of Iowa State University, ag economist, uh, thank you uh, for your observations uh, about uh, this announcement this week. Uh, Taiwan agreeing to buy nearly $3 billion of U.S. corn and soybeans. Thank you, Chad. Thank you. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Recently, a University of Iowa student made military history. He became the first U.S. Air Force cadet granted permission to wear traditional Sikh garb as part of his military uniform. Well, let's meet him. Gersharan Verk was born in Des Moines. He's a third-year University of Iowa student, also an ROTC Air Force cadet. Gersharan, welcome to our studio. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You are the first Sikh uh, Air Force cadet in U.S. history allowed to wear the turban, a beard, a bracelet. Uh, these are sacred religious symbols of your faith. Before we get into the story of how you were granted this waiver from the Air Force, tell us a little bit about yourself and how your family came to Iowa. Uh, well, uh, my family, my parents are still back in India. Uh, I have some um, extended family in Iowa, and that's how I ended up in Iowa, but Always wanted to go to uh, college in the U.S. I was born here, lived in India for a little bit, uh, went to a boarding school there. But yeah, I came back junior high school, and that's how I found out about the ROTC program. And also, I just wanted to go to the University of Iowa, you know, go Hawks. Of course. Okay. Tell us a little bit about the Sikh faith, especially why wearing the turban, uh, a beard, and a bracelet are so important. What do they represent? Yeah, so the turban and the beard and the bracelet are one of the most important things in uh, the Sikh faith because uh, historically Sikhs are people who believe in humanity and who believe in helping people who need help and those in help uh, those in the need of help. So we wearing a turban is uh, basically you know you're in a crowd you wear a turban you stand out. So if anyone needs help, they know you know you see a Sikh wearing a turban, they can go exactly to them to get any kind of help they need. And uh, us uh, as Sikhs wearing a turban, we carry that responsibility with us, you know, that if someone comes up to us for help, you know, we're wearing the turban, we're representing the community, and that's our responsibility to help them out. Hmm. Interesting. What is the story of how you came to seek this religious accommodation? So you you had your eyes set on the U.S. Air Force. How did this uh, start to... to um sort of integrate your turban, beard, and bracelet into the military uniform? Yeah. So I've always wanted to fly, and I thought there's no better place to fly than the Air Force. 
but I also uh, read up on it and knew that the Air Force does not allow any uh, religious headgear or beard without a waiver. So I reached out to the detachment here in the University of Iowa about you know all my questions, and this was one of my first questions that I'm a Sikh, I wear a turban, I have a beard, how does that work? And they were all very helpful, supportive about it. You know, they let me know about the whole process, the waiver process. And once I started, they they were the ones actually working on it. So I, I just had a little bit of work and they did all of the other massive works behind the scene. Were there any big hurdles that you could detect, challenges, or did it did it go right through? Um, I think it went pretty smooth. Yeah, so hmm. I, didn't, I, I did not feel any hurdles or at least uh, they didn't let me know of it. So I guess they <laughs> dealt with it. But yeah, it, it went pretty smooth for me. At what point did you realize you were making uh, history here? Uh, I did not know that until this May or April, sorry. That's when I found out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, your future career plans, you have uh, a year or so left at the University of Iowa. You're in the ROTC Air Force uh, Cadet uh, program there. What's your major? I'm a bioinformatics major. Uh, but by next year, I'll f- I want to be a f- pilot. So by next year, uh, in next year's spring, I'll find out if uh, I get t- to be a pilot in the Air Force or not. So yeah, that's that's hopefully my future plan. But I do have some backup careers uh, if I don't get a pilot slot. So this would be a slot in the Air Force Academy uh, in Colorado Springs. No. So we through the ROTC we commission as uh, officers. So after I graduate, I'll be an officer. So if I get a pilot slot, I go I go straight to pilot training for the Air Force. Where do you see yourself in a few years? Hopefully. Hopefully. What's your what's your best your best vision here? <laughs> Hopefully flying for the Air Force, uh where the, wherever the Air Force needs me. Mm-hmm. What kind of planes? Uh I honestly want to fly heavies or bombers. Um I just think they're pretty cool planes to fly, especially the B2. So, yeah, that's 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 kind of my uh vision for the next few years. Yeah. How did you latch onto flying and onto planes? Is there something earlier in your, your childhood that excited you at, at a certain point? Yeah. I don't know what it's been, but since I was just like, as long as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a pilot, you know. Um, and then something that really made it strong was I read a quote once and it said that, you know, if you're a pilot, your office is at 30,000 feet and you work with the clouds. <laughs> and that something about that just, just made it like feel so cool and it just resonated with me and then I started uh, learning how to fly uh, this past year and I absolutely love it all right well we wish you the best of of luck in your career flying or otherwise Uh, uh, Gersharan Verk was born in Des Moines he's a third year University of Iowa student ROTC Air Force cadet and the first sick Air Force cadet in U.S. history allowed to wear the turban beard and bracelet uh, as they are sacred re- religious symbols of, of his faith. Gersharan, thank you for coming into our studio. Uh, you're delightful, and we wish you all the best. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Happy Friday, y'all. <laughs> all right. Don't go away. There's more River to River to come. We'll be back after a short break. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. 
It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. They're established writers from some 30 countries around the world currently taking part in a residence here in Iowa. International Writers in Iowa, a long tradition. We've been getting to know some of the writers currently in residence here on River to River. Well, let's meet now Joaquin Ortega. Joaquin is a playwright, essayist, poet, and a scholar. He's from Venezuela. Joaquin, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thank you for for your invitation. You have an interesting background. Uh, uh, You you work across various media. You're a writer. You teach at the uh, University of Central Venezuela. Um, You also work in in radio and television. First of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and and your work in media. So I began to to write for for radio and for TV before I I graduated myself as a political science because it's my 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 first uh, my profession. But my craft is is based on writing comedy and writing sci-fi, and that's very funny because uh, uh, television and 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 broadcasting uh, they they have different levels of, of of explanation, you know. And and when you when you ha- you find your voice in the in the scripts, and you can make a, a super. Production of a Hollywood movie with a simple uh, piece of paper, you know. Mm-hmm. Especially in if if you work on radio, but if you had you have to go work to television or TV scripts or film scripts, there's another another kind of, of production. So you you work with humor, but you're also uh, have studied political science. What type of humor does your hum- humor deal with politics? Yes, the first time when I was begin uh, at TV uh, at TV, I work in a in a, in a in a TV show called Radio Rochela. It's like kind of a national lampoon in Venezuela, and for over fifty years, maybe the, they were they made political uh, comedy and uh, parodies and sketch about that, and that's what my my first work but I, I also work on some more 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 surreal uh, comedy I write uh, parodies and and satires about politics in my country but also I I wrote uh, parodies of uh, of beauty pageants and some some other sketches let me ask you your journey here because that is a reflection of the very difficult relations between our country and your country. What did it take to get here? Yes, the, there's no direct flights f- from Venezuela to states to the United States, and so I have to go to Colombia. When I cross the border, I, I get to Colombia, and in Colombia they give me the visa, the American visa, because in Venezuela there's no American embassy who works in on that visa thing. And after from Colombia to to here, there's no there's no problem. There's, there's there was a an easy an easy an easy journey, an easy trip, but it's difficult because uh, the, we have to cross from another country, from Venezuela to Colombia, to reach the this uh, and, and a flight. Or maybe another people are are going on foot, and they cro- they're crossing the Darien jungle, and uh, everybody has his his own cross, you know. Everybody has uh, his own. Uh, everybody has to to find their own way to to go out from Venezuela. Yeah, yeah. Last month, in fact, Venezuelans surpassed Guatemalans and. Uh, Hondurans to become the second largest nationality stopped at the U.S. border after Mexicans and nearly 7 million Venezuelans have fled your country uh, since the economic collapse there in 2014, um, some of them coming to the United States. 
describe the government in power in Venezuela and the, the conditions in your homeland currently. Okay, it's we live in a humanitarian crisis because uh, I think uh, we live a, a, an undeclared war from the government to the civil people. There's so many people that watch thing, things about Venezuela. It's mostly propaganda, you know. It's it's a kind of a political marketing about the that all is good, but indeed uh, there's the two two type of people that work uh, so many tied with the government and the rest of the, of the population and the rest of the population. It's accurate to say that the government is a leftist leftist dictatorship in the country. Yeah, yes, they, they talk about this, but you know, in in the sense of a political science, it's, a, it's an authoritarian uh, government and you call it a dictatorship, you call it t- tyranny, but in it's the same, you know, you they're using the, all the tools uh, that uh, all the tyrannies are using uh, across the across the time. You said leftists because they're using the the ideology as a propaganda, but in the in the fact they're they're acting like fascist because mm-hmm. fascist and and. And, and communism works with the same kind of torture, political prisoners, uh, persecutions. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of dystopia, you know? Yeah. Uh, you've been here for, for several weeks here in Iowa. Uh, how, how have you... How has this experience been for you? It's incredible because um, uh, one of, uh, of the things I most love is the the smile. Everybody smiles. Uh, re- they they answer your smile, <laughs> and that's I think it's a, a great a great thing. Uh, especially the other things is the liberty, the the possibility to exchange uh, information, to find books, to to get uh, a free internet. Uh, the the speed of the internet is it's awesome because in my country there's something like from the <laughs> from from the Jurassic times you know but I think uh, I especially the in the program we have so many chances to to know each other the the writers international writers but especially the American culture I think is the it's so in, important to me to find the the core of the of the liberty of the, of the people and, and especially the the possibility to free speech you know in my country all the radio stations and all the TV stations that I've been working, they're closed, they shut down by the government. Joaquin Ortega, writer from Venezuela, working across various media. He's uh, currently in residence at the University of Iowa's International Writing Program. Find out more about the International Writing Program here in Iowa by uh, just searching for IWP Iowa with your browser. Take care, Joaquin. Thank you so much. And we are very nearly finished with this News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. And uh, it is a pledge drive. But uh, does that prevent us from grooving into the weekend? I say no way. And so does uh, Tony Daner of IPR Studio One, uh, host there. Hi, Tony. Hi, Ben. I think it's more of a reason to groove into the weekend personally. Exactly, Tony. Let's uh, inspire others to support uh, and invest in Iowa Public Radio, all the news and the music. You've got a tune to groove us into the weekend. What do you have? Sure do. So uh, this young artist is IPR's Artist of the Month for September, Eleanor Grace. She is an 18-year-old singer-songwriter from Des Moines. She has released music before. This new record is her first full-length record. It's called Dream About a Cowboy, and 
It is a country album, as you might have guessed, and that is not what she's done in the past. A little bit of a departure for Eleanor Grace artistically, but it sure does sound good. So uh, let's hear the title track right now. Eleanor Grace and Dream About a Cowboy. Wow, Tony Daner, you and the others at IPR Studio One have done it again, introduced me to an amazing new voice, such a voice, such expression from Eleanor Grace of Des Moines. You said only 18? Yes, talented and wise and witty beyond her years. Uh, I had a great time speaking with her a couple weeks ago, and you can hear our conversation this weekend on IPR Studio One All Access. Uh, my conversation with Eleanor Grace, and we'll hear a live set from her next weekend. Okay, let's go out with more of her dream about a cowboy, Eleanor Grace of Des Moines. Tony, thank you so much. Uh, Let's groove into the weekend uh, with Eleanor and pledge your support now to news and music you hear on Iowa Public Radio. Tony, take care. Thanks, Ben. You too. Tony Daner, IPR Studio One host. River to River today, produced by Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) 